Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 13. And reading from old King James here, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then, everybody say then. 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 Okay, we'll come back to that in due time. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, and the uh, New King James says, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Or New King James says, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil for our lamps. Uh, uh, New King James is uh, better than old on that one. Our lamps are going out, not gone out, but are going out. But the wise uh, answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you not know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, I just want to take and uh, encourage you to take notes on the, uh, the uh, blank side of the sheet here. I want to take a, a while here just to sort of give us a setting. The theme that we're going to be looking at tonight is called the Midnight Hour, as you'll see. But I want you to notice the setting of this uh, parable of the wise and foolish virgins. In, the, in chapter 24 and 25, which are actually one, one, uh, one discourse, the Oliver Discourse, I want you to notice that there are four parables here. And uh, let's just sort of have a bit of an overview here uh, and help us to understand that word then. Then. Okay, the first parable is found in chapter 24, verses 32 to 35 and it's the parable of the fig tree. So verse 32, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branches yet tend and put forth these leaves, you know that summer is nigh, so likewise when you see all these things, know that it's near even at the door. So we have the parable of the fig tree. Then the second parable in the Oliver Discourse is the one we just read, Matthew 25 verses 1 through to 13. And this is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. So parable number one, the parable of the budding fig tree. Number, parable number two, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Then number three, the third parable is in chapter 25, verses 14 through to 30. And here we have the parable of the talents. The, uh, the faithful servant and the slothful servant. So the parable of the talents the faithful servant and the slothful servant. Why don't you go back to uh, uh, chapter uh, 24 and verse 45. We, ha- we have mentioned this on one other occasion, but just to get the link up here. The two parables in chapter 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and the parable of the faithful and slothful servants are given as illustrations of chapter 24 and verse uh, 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? So we have faithful servant and slothful servant, the parable of the talents. Who then is a wise servant? And opposite to wise is foolish. We have the parable of the wise and the foolish virgin. So verse 45 is sort of the key uh, dealing with those first two parables in chapter 25. The faithful and wise or those two parables, I should say. Parable of the talents, the faithful and slothful servant, or the wise and foolish virgin. So verse 45 is exemplified in those two parables. Then, uh, so that's parable number three, the parable of the talents. Then number four, and uh, there is a difference of opinion about this, but uh, some expositors hold it, and I would would follow them. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46 is the parable of 
just for now without qualifying it, is the parable of the sheep and the goat nations, when all the nations are gathered and they are set aside on the right hand or the left as sheep uh, or as goats. So it's referred to as the parable of the sheep and goat nations. So we have parable number one, the parable of the fig tree, then parable number two, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, then number three, the parable of the talents, the faithful and slothful servants, and then number four, the parable of the sheep and goat nation. So we have four parables here. Now, as I said, when Matthew wrote the gospel here, we do not have any chapter divisions. Chapter 24 and chapter 25 are both part of the Olivet Discourse. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 24, the beginning here, and uh, let's pick up here sort of the setting then, because uh, I have to say a lot of things in order to help us uh, understand Matthew 25. Then, when? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto five wise and five foolish virgins. So we want to get the setting here. All right, now Matthew 24 and verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, it's a very significant thing here. In fact, let's go to verse 2 and 3, and then I'll comment. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, uh, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? All right, now let's get the uh, picture that we have here. Um, you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. Often in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, all of the uh, Gospels, you see Jesus often do what I call a, um, <clears throat> a uh, physical symbolic act. So think of that, a physical symbolic act. So verse 1 says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now, what has happened here, and let's just start to use our famous timeline around here. Everybody knows that everything hangs on this line. Uh, what has happened here, Jesus has been ministering for, we believe, the first half of the 70-week prophecy, three and a half years. I don't know if that's very clear or not. And he's about to be crucified. And so over this period of time, Jesus has been to the temple, and I'd like to, we haven't got time to turn to the scriptures, so we want to cover what we need to today. We find that in the, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has cleansed the temple twice. He's cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. Just put down for, uh, for note's sake here, John chapter 2 and verses 13 to 22, John 2 verse 13 to 22. At the beginning of his ministry, the last prophecy of, of uh, Malachi was, the Lord whom ye seek shall come suddenly to his temple, but who may abide the day of his coming? So they were not expecting Christ to come to the temple the way he did. And, uh, and see, that makes one of the temptations of Satan very significant because in uh, one of the temptations, uh, quite evident in vision, Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, uh, cast yourself down. It's written, he will give his angels charge over thee. And I'm sure that in Satan's mind, how many know that the devil really knows the Bible? He knows it better than Christians do. He studied it. He doesn't like uh, a few chapters in the book of Revelation, particularly about the lake of fire. Uh, seems to agitate him. And uh, so it's just like he would say to Jesus, listen, Malachi said, the Lord whom he seeks shall come suddenly to his temple and they're looking for the Messiah to come from the temple. So why don't you cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple? Uh, God will rescue you before you hit rock bottom. But uh, that wasn't the type of coming that uh, they expected. So when Jesus came to the temple in John 2, he cleansed the money changers, over, overthrew the money changers' tables and drove out them that sold doves and everything like that. Now the significant thing about this is at the beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed, he said, uh, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So he called the temple his father's house. Very significant there. This is my father's house and it's to be a house of prayer for all nations, my father's house. Now, over the years, as Jesus, uh, over those three and a half years, as Jesus ministered in Jerusalem and Judea and the different cities round about, then we come to Matthew chapter 21 
And in Matthew chapter 21, we find that they have brought the same abominations and corruptions and commercial racket into the, into the temple again. And so he cleanses the temple the second time. So first cleansing and second cleansing. And so this time he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Again, he refers to the father's house. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he cleanses the temple. Now, there is a cleansing at the beginning of his ministry, cleansing at the uh, end of his ministry, but they reject the cleansing. Now, in both cases, he said, my father's house, my father's house, it is written, uh, my house should be called a house of prayer. Now, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 23 in the light of those comments. My house, my father's house. Uh, shall be house of prayer it is written. Now, in uh, Matthew 24, in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as the hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. In my Bible, I've underlined that, how often I would, but you wouldn't. I would, but you wouldn't. Now, in verse 38, listen to the significant language. He says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. No longer my father's house, no longer my house, your house. So, listen to what he says here. So behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And the word desolate means actually devoid of inhabitant. When a house is desolate, once the occupant and the owner of the house leaves, the house just falls into desolation. So no longer my father's house or my house. It's your house is left unto you desolate. And remember Malachi's prophecy and Haggai's prophecy when the temple was rebuilt. After the restoration period, he said, the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former. They never understood it. And, 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 and most, most uh, expositors don't seem to see the fulfillment that when Jesus came, he was the glory of God himself. He was the Shekinah glory. The word was made flesh and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. And when he ministered in the temple, Solomon's temple never ever saw that type of glory. He was the glory of God personified. So now they've rejected the cleansing, so he says, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, in verse 1, let's read it again in the light of that. And as I said, Jesus is doing what I call a, a physical symbolic act. So just imagine he's just cleansed the temple. They've rejected that cleansing. And so uh, he says, your house, no longer my father's house, your house left unto you desolate. And now verse uh, 1 of 24, and Jesus went out. Just imagine here's the temple behind me. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. It's a physical, symbolic act. But his disciples come to show him the glory. And what does he immediately do? He begins to prophesy the destruction of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? It's no longer my father's house. It's their house, desolate, devoid of glory and inhabitant. Uh, he went out and departed from it, never to return to a material temple again. And then he prophesies its destruction. There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as uh, on uh, other occasions we mentioned this, Jesus is prophesying of what would happen in AD 70. And in AD 70, about 40 years later, 40 being the number of probationary period, uh, about 40 years later, AD 70, the uh, Prince Titus came with the Roman armies. And of course the temple, uh, we don't have much, too, much, too much teaching on the temple, but in the temple treasuries and the temple chambers up here uh, was all the wealth of the nation. It was actually the banking institution of the nation. And they had all the silver and gold up there. And of course the, the priests, when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, the priest, uh, according to tradition, uh, uh, sewed up the veil to hide it from the people and carried on that abominable system of sacrifices until AD 70 God allowed Prince Titus and the Roman armies to throw in flaming torches that set the veil on fire, burnt the temple down and the silver and gold melted between the stones and according to the prophecy of Jesus the Roman armies they overturned every stone in the temple to get the silver and gold that was melting not one stone was left unturned upon another so you'll notice what Jesus is doing here 
It was my father's house, my house, house of prayer, but now it's your house, desolate. And he prophesies its destruction. Now in verse 3, let's go to Matthew 24, verse 3. Here is his position. And as he sat, now remember the Matthew, uh, gospel of Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. And here he sits. Turn, turn back to, uh, just hold that and turn back to Matthew 5. Because as I said, Jesus often does a lot of physical, symbolic acts. Here, Matthew chapter 5. And verse 1. Very similar here. And back here we, we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, or New King James says, and when he was seated... His disciples came unto him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So uh, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up into a mountain, and in that seated position, when he was set as king in the kingdom, uh, he opened his mouth, began to teach them. So we have Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Now here in Matthew 24 and 25, we have a very similar thing. Your house is left unto you desolate. It's going to be overthrown. Not one stone will be unturned upon another. And he goes up into the Mount of Olives. And uh, all, all that is very significant. We can't turn to scriptures to uh, con uh, confirm all this. But uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sat there. And in the Mount of Olives, he gives what we refer to as the Oliver Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are both one whole discourse. And uh, it's from the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus goes back to the Father. And when you go back to the prophecy of Ezekiel, way many, many years ago, when the Shekinah glory left the material temple in Ezekiel's time, uh, it went to the Mount of Olives and went back to the Father. So the Mount of Olives, and when Jesus comes back the second time, he comes back to the Mount of Olives. So it has a lot of significance here. So when he was set, so he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came unto him privately, saying, and I'd like you to make a note of this, in verse 3, they ask a threefold question. They ask a threefold question. Let's look at the questions. Number one, tell us when shall these things be, and these things they're referring to, the destruction of the temple when not one stone will be left unturned upon another. So number one, when shall these things be? Our answer, as history has proven, AD 70, when the temple was destroyed by Roman armies and the Jew has never had a temple since. Almost 2,000 years. The second part of the question is, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? So second part the sign of thy coming. And then the third part of the question, so it's a threefold question here. Oh, let me, let me just uh, point you to um, verse 20. Uh, verse, uh, yes, on, on the second part of the question, um, <clears throat> number one, so tell us when shall these things be? Okay, the answer would be in AD 70. Second, uh, second part of the question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Put down verse 30 of the same chapter because throughout this chapter he's answering these questions. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So verse 30 answers that. Tell us what shall be the sign of thy coming. And he gives that in verse 30. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. Then the third part of the question is, and of the end of the world, or the world is better translated, age. So tell us, number one, when shall these things be? Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And number three, of the end of the age, the end of the world. All right, so we have three, three, a threefold question there. Now I want you to pick up here on uh, these words. And uh, let's, let's sort of superimpose this here. So from the Mount of Olives, uh, it's before, just before his crucifixion really, he gives us, in Matthew 24 and 25, remember it's just one Oliver Discourse, 
He gives us what I refer to as a miniature book of Revelation. Uh, everything pretty well in Revelation is in more detail, but Matthew 24 and 25 is actually a uh, mini book of Revelation. Now, let's pick up the word beginning and end in the third question. Third part of the question, what should be the sign of the coming and of the end of the world? I want you to notice these key words that are used here. Let's pick up the word beginning first of all. In um, verse 8, we have the word beginning. All these, what, are the beginning of sorrows. Let's, let's just go back a little bit here. Uh, I want to get onto what we're looking at tonight, but just the setting here. In verse... Um, Verse 4, 5, and 6, and 7. Uh, Let no man, take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am anointed, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear wars, and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, pestilence, earthquakes, in divers places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Now, uh, this is not our subject tonight, but just to put it in your mind, Taking this panoramic view, as I said, many, many book of Revelation, Jesus actually gives us like one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, at least six things, and uh, we won't do that tonight, but I'll just put the seed in your mind. Uh, what, what you see in the book of Revelation, uh, particularly Revelation chapter uh, six, yes, Revelation chapter six, you see all these things there, you see the white horse, the red horse speaking of war, rumors of war, you see the black horse, famine, then you see the next horse, pestilence. In fact, uh, many will betray each other and martyrdom. You see, uh, actually it's a miniature overview of the, the uh, first six seals in the book of Revelation that's in this chapter. The sixth seal is where the sun is dark and the moon is turned to blood and the stars of heaven fall. And Jesus talks about that in... In verse, go down to verse, um, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give a light, stars of, of heaven shall, uh, shall fall from heaven, the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So it's, it's a miniature of Revelation chapter 6 here. All right, now he just says they are the beginning. Because uh, unfolding the book of Revelation, you say, the seals are the beginning because we have seven seals and seven trumpets and seven vials that brings us to the second coming. So it's just, as I said, this is just a mini, a mini, mini book of Revelation. All right, so verse 8 again, these are the beginning of sorrows. Now let's go and look at the word end in um, verse 6. Uh, I, you know, I mark my Bible all the time. It's all so good. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, they've asked him, tell us what shall be the, when these things shall be. What will be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? So he says there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. All these things got to come to pass, but the end is not yet. Go down to verse 8 again. These are the beginning. Of sorrows. Go down to verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And here is the clearest sign of the end. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then, and not until then, shall the end come. Now, how many see the questions that they're asking? Tell us when shall these things be? Okay, we can only go by history on that, the overturning of the stones of the temple. Question number two, and the sign of thy coming, all right, immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, moon turned to blood, stars of heaven shall fall, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. So answering that question. And then, end of the end of the age. Well, what's that? Uh, how will we know the end of the age? He said, this gospel of the kingdom. These things are going to happen, but the end is not yet. That's just the beginning. The end is not yet. He that endure to the end shall be saved. If you want to know the end now, 
Matthew 24 and verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So verse 14 actually answers the third question of, uh, of verse 3, and of the end of the world. Now, you know that I don't believe Jesus will come back tonight or tomorrow night, because there's still at least 15 to 17, in fact they say almost 2,000 or more, uh, ethnic groupings that have never heard the name of Jesus yet and haven't even got one verse of scripture in their language. And book of Revelation tells us that out of every kindred, every tongue, every tribe and nation, the lamb is to see fruit from his death. So I'm sorry to say this, but, uh, and I don't, don't think it affects us too much here, hope not anyway, but a lot of people are looking for a little sneaky rapture and you know, for a lot of Christians, in my mind, the rapture has become just a little fire escape, a selfish fire escape. In other words, oh, I wish Jesus would come back and just get me out of this mess, let the world go to hell. No, I don't want Jesus to come back tonight. There's still a lot of souls to be saved out there. What are we sending missionaries for? What are we even witnessing for if you say, oh, come back tonight, Lord, let the world go to hell? So for a lot of Christians, the rapture is just a, a, a selfish fire escape. Jesus wants to see some souls saved out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation before it comes. How many can say amen? So I just want to stay here as long as the Lord wants me to until the church gets the job done. So this gospel of the kingdom and all that that means has got to be preached in all the world for witness unto all ethnic groupings. The word nation there is all ethnics. And then, and not until then, shall the end come. Now, just for those who have not heard me say that before, and you might be losing your second blessing. Some people say, well, Kevin, how can you do that? You're putting off the coming of the Lord? The little pipsqueak me? <laughs> See, let me say it again for those who haven't heard me say this. As we saw last week in the time then, God's working to a plan. And uh, Jesus came right on time the first time. Nobody could hasten his coming and nobody could postpone it. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So Jesus came right on time the first time. How many believe that? Amen. But see, you hear teaching going around today, oh, if we hurry up and do this, then uh, Jesus will come back quicker. We'll hasten the coming of the king. Very unscriptural. In fact, I've heard some people, bless their cotton socks, say, oh, if the early church had have done their job, Jesus would have come back there. But they postponed his coming. Look, if that was true, that the, if the early church had done its job and Jesus would have come back there, none of us would have received the gospel. We wouldn't even be born because I wasn't born till, where am I? How old am I? 19, 1927. And you wouldn't have been here if Jesus had come back there. How many see that's a silly argument? No, God's working to plan. Jesus came right on time the first time. Nobody could hasten his coming. Nobody could postpone it. He's going to come right on time the second time. No one's going to hasten it and no one's going to postpone it. He's going to come right on time. He's not bound by a Seiko watch as we saw last week. How many are glad for that? Yeah, thank you, all six of you. How many are glad for that? Yeah. All right, so, end. Now, I want you to pick up three other words. As, well, we better move on quickly, haven't we? I want you to pick up three other words here, or three other expressions. Uh, we've really dealt with one of them. We have the word, the expression, great tribulation. Let's put it down here. And uh, let's look at the verses that it's used. As I said, I believe Matthew 24. Now, some, some expositors believe that Matthew 24 and 25, particularly 24, was all fulfilled back here in AD 70. So, well, may have had a partial fulfillment, but the fullness of it wasn't fulfilled. Jesus didn't come back in AD 70. All right, so verse 21, these are key words in, in this Olivet Discourse, this, the mini, mini book of Revelation. Verse 21, it says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Then shall be great tribulation. Then verse 29 is the next use of the word tribulation. Immediately after 
not before immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon shall not give a light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And you do not see the darkening of the sun or the moon turning to blood or stars of heaven fall until you get to the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. So it gives you a clue. All right, that's the first thing. Now, we've already dealt with uh, the end. So uh, these are three keys here. We've already looked at the end. The gospel of the kingdom has got to be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then, and not until then, shall the end come. The third word I want you to look at is this word coming, because these two chapters are the most comprehensive in the Gospel of Matthew about the coming of the Lord. And the word uh, coming or cometh or come is used a total of 16 times. I'd like to give you the verses. I'd like to give you the verses. So coming, used 16 times, either coming of the Lord or else come or cometh. Let's go through the verses and uh, I'll just say them slowly here. Verse 3 of chapter 24. What shall be the sign of thy coming? Verse uh, 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 30. Then shall appear the sign of the man, uh, Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 37. But as in the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 39. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 48. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. And verse, uh, back to verse 42, For come, uh, watch therefore you do not know what hour your Lord doth come. Verse 43, But this know, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched. Then verse 50, The Lord of that servant shall come, in a day when he looks not for him. And then the word cometh, I'll just say these verses, I think I've convinced you enough on that. Verse 27 again, uh, it cometh as the lightning cometh. Verse 44, verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of, Son of Man cometh. And then you can put down also verse 31, And uh, verse 6, 13, and 19. It's just uh, variations of the coming, or come, or cometh. So verse 13, verse 6, 13, and 19. So 16 times the coming of the Lord is referred to. All right, so how many understand what we've been doing so far? Ask your question. How many understand what we've been doing? All six of you? Okay, so just an overview. Now, let's go to Matthew 25. I said all that to say this. Matthew 25 and verse 1. Then. When? All that we've looked at this. Then. And you know the, the word then is very simple. I got this meaning out of Collins English Dictionary. It means literally at that time. So think of it. At that time. When? Then. At that time. So after Jesus giving all this our great tribulation, the end, his coming, he says, at that time. So I'm saying this, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, though truth is applicable in every generation, that parable is particularly applicable to our generation. Time of the Lord's coming. 
the time element, relevant to the events pertaining to the end times, the coming of the Lord. Then, when? Then, at that time, referring to a time specified either past or present, uh, soon afterwards, immediately. Although the truth, reading off my notes here, although truth is applicable to every generation, the full truth of the parable of virgins is more especially applicable to the generation alive at the coming of the Lord. At that time, so let's read it that way. Instead of saying then, we'll say, at that time, shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto wise and foolish virgins who had lamps, oil vessels, and the bridegroom tarried, or literally the bridegroom was delayed. All slumbered and slept, a condition of sleep on all the wise and foolish. Now in verse 6, which is really our theme tonight, and at midnight there was a cry made. Now, this parable always bothers me. I don't know how you feel about it, but we have the number 10, and we have five wise and five foolish. Five, uh, the foolish took their lamps and no oil with them. How many have picked up the only difference between the wise and the foolish virgins was verse 4. That the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. That was the only difference. They all had lamps, but the wise took an extra vessel with their lamps. That's the only difference. Because they all heard the midnight cry, they all slumbered and slept, all of them. There was no difference except the wise had an extra vessel. Now we're told in verse 6 that there was, uh, at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go ye out to meet him. Let me just read off my notes here. We've got, uh, we've, we're not to read this through Western thinking. The parable is based on an Eastern custom, listen to it, and Jewish weddings in this time, the cultural setting, generally were celebrated at night, starting at the rise of the evening star. Uh, here the delay of the bridegroom was until midnight. And according to the custom, the Eastern custom, not our Western custom, we mustn't read the Bible through Western uh, glasses. The virgins had to go out to meet the bridegroom as he came to meet the bride, and then the bridegroom would take the bride back to his house. And uh, that's a tremendous picture of Jesus coming the second time as the bridegroom to meet his bride and take her back to his house. Henry would like to go and live with Jesus. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. So he's got a big mansion over the hilltop. He used to sing those spiritual songs many years ago, didn't we? I've got a mansion just over the hilltop made of clay. So it points, points to the coming of Christ, the bridegroom for his bride uh, to earth to escort her back to his house. Now, I want to pick up for uh, our, our last uh, half here is the whole of the thought of the midnight cry. So you can turn over to your other side of your sheet now and let's start on that. Now, I want you to go way down to the bottom of the sheet here and what we'll find here is that the midnight hour was either a time of trouble or blessing. The midnight cry, midnight hour was a time of trouble or blessing. Let's turn over to uh, Job 34. Job 34. And verse 20. So Job 34, verse 20. That will be the scripture down the bottom of your page. Midnight hour, time of trouble or blessing. Depends which side of the door you're on. It says uh, in Job 34 verse 20, In a moment shall they die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away. And all of us know, you know, that there's uh, almost a lot of superstition about the midnight hour. Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even to the firstborn, the maidservant that's behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts, and there shall be a great cry. Now, just think, we're reading the parable of the, of the wise and foolish virgins, then, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like unto five wise and five spirits. And at midnight, there is a great cry. Here is midnight and there's a great cry. Now, down here, as we'll see in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, it's a great cry and it concerns oil. Back here, at the midnight hour, there's a great cry and it concerns blood. So you can imagine the scene. Let's give you the other verses there. So midnight, 
Uh, there should be a great cry at midnight. I'll go out, there'll be a great cry. And then go down to chapter 12 and uh, verse, the exact verse here is verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat upon his throne unto the firstborn of the captive uh, that was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians, there, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There is not a house where there was not one dead. I mean, can we, can we imagine that? So God, now, notice what we said from those two scriptures. At midnight, uh, the people will be troubled at midnight. But at midnight, I will arise and give thanks to thee because of thy righteous judgments. Let's apply both those verses. So we can't, I was, my wife and I were watching uh, the uh, video the other night on Moses. Did anybody see that? And uh, especially the death of the firstborn. I mean, we just, we just can't comprehend, you know, as the death angel went through Egypt and smote Pharaoh's firstborn. And in every house there's not one. And uh, as they woke up at midnight, that uncanny feeling, and they rush over to the child's cot or the firstborn, pick up the babies. Everybody's holding a dead baby. Death of the firstborn, a great cry. And can you hear the cry of the mothers or Pharaoh, of, the, of everybody? I mean, the great cry that just ascended out to Egypt. And you know why it all happened? Because they rejected blood. Whereas in the house of, 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 of the household of faith, the children of Israel, every house, as we've seen before, had this triune application of blood on the lintel and on the two side posts in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A triune application, one blood because it involved one plan of redemption. A triune application of blood because it was the blood of God, it was the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit who applies the blood. And they're inside the house, feeding upon the lamb. And death had already taken place. A firstborn lamb had died to make Israel the church of the firstborn, but these other firstborn had rejected the death of the firstborn. So we just can't comprehend. I mean, you just imagine a city like Melbourne and the population of Egypt when this wail and this desolate cry at midnight, people were troubled at midnight. But at midnight, the Lord said, I'm going to take you out into the world. Now, let me just throw the sea thoughts in. We move on. So plagues, nine plagues, and then the death of the firstborn, the application of the blood, and then we're told in Exodus 19 that God took Israel on eagles' wings into the wilderness unto himself. Now all that language is used way here in the book of Revelation. The plagues, most of them are repeated. They overcame it by the blood of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 12, that is. And in Revelation chapter 12 we're told of a woman who was given the wings of a great eagle to fly into the wilderness where she uh, uh, has a place prepared of God. Just like Israel, God said to Israel, I brought you on eagle's wings uh, into the wilderness unto myself. See, type and anti-type. Shadow, prophecy and fulfillment. All there. Midnight. What, a, what an hour. And so many thoughts could be said there. All those who were inside the house had to put away leaven and feed upon the body of the lamb. They were full of the lamb. And uh, all of them were healed, we're told. There was not one feeble member among them and they were protected from the plagues. Now the plague should come nigh thy dwelling. Only with your eyes shall you behold the reward of the wicked. And that's exactly what happened to all those who were in the household of faith. How many are glad for the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Passover lamb? Midnight hour. Let's go quickly to another one because our time's almost here. Up uh, uh, Under B you can put this. Put down Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. And we'll just read the appropriate verse, make a, a few brief comments here. Judges chapter 16. And here we have the case of Samson, not a very perfect man, but uh, there are incident, incidents in his life that do point to the church. And in Judges 16, uh, we're told in verse 3, And Samson lay till midnight 
and arose at midnight and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, carried them up to the top of a hill. gate of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, carried them up to the top of a hill that is before Hebron. As I said, Samson in this case, not very brilliant, but there is the thought that at the midnight hour, Samson took the gates when he was surrounded by his enemies, he took the gates of the city and in this case gained victory over his enemies. Now he ends up bad, but the whole thought is midnight. And it points to the church, uh, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Ultimately pointing to the church possessing the gate of his enemies at the midnight hour. Alright, number C. Uh, here's a beautiful picture. The next uh, book here after Samuel we have uh, Ruth and here's a beautiful picture of something that took place at midnight. Where's Ruth? Just after Judges, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Put down Ruth. Where are you, Ruth? There she is. I just found her. Uh, page 340. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 13. And we have uh, the word here. Reading from, uh, I think this is it. No, I'm sorry, it's verse 8. Sorry, verse 8. Yes, Boaz... Let me say a couple of thoughts there. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And so in verse 8, it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Uh, today would be very bad for us. But the custom there was, if there's a, a kinsman redeemer, then the bride-to-be or the one to be redeemed could lay at the feet of the bridegroom. So pointing to the church as the bride of Christ, at the midnight hour found at his feet in the threshing floor of harvest. Uh, put down, uh, let's go over to Luke chapter, go down to the New Testament, our time's almost up here. Uh, so let's just make sure, I know I'm moving a bit fast here, but midnight in Israel having to do with the blood and then midnight in Samson having to do with the uh, possessing the gate of the enemies and then midnight and uh, Ruth uh, the bride at the feet of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And then let's go over to, down to the New Testament here. Luke chapter 11, and see how Jesus takes up that whole thought. Luke chapter 11. And again, uh, this is in par parable form. Luke chapter 11. And uh, put this under the New Testament uh, heading there. And he said unto them, so Luke 11, I'll pick up verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, he's come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Uh, we spoke on this a long, long time, on the parable of the three friends. The friend in deed, the friend in need, and the friend for a feed. Um, but it was the midnight hour. So at the midnight hour comes, let me three loaves. Uh, the fullness of the bread of God that's needed. Jesus was a friend of sinners. They should find some friends in the church. And the friends in the church, we don't have anything of ourselves. But I can go to a friend who's got a lot of bread. Amen? So, but it's the midnight hour. In the end of this age, there will be a cry for the true bread of life. Men will want to know the full truth. I'm reading off my notes. They will come asking and praying for the three loaves of the fullness of the Godhead. Only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can satisfy the hunger of the human heart. Uh, 
Now let's go back to Matthew 25. So midnight hour there has to do with bread, fullness of bread, three loaves, three measures of meal. Now Matthew 25 has to do with oil. So at midnight there is a cry made. So what we would do on this, and we just have a few more things to say, is a lot of these pictures in the Old Testament, you can go like this, that at midnight there was the great cry and because they had rejected the blood, at midnight, Samson took the gates of his enemy. At midnight, the bride was found at the feet of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, uh, other ones in the Old Testament. New Testament, at uh, midnight, he wanted three loaves to feed uh, his friend. At midnight, there was the need of oil, the, uh, the cry to meet the bridegroom, and there's some other ones. Let me just give you the scriptures without turning to these. I just want to finish on something else. Put down uh, under, where are you? A, B, uh, C. Put down Acts chapter 16 and 25. Acts 16, 25. And you'll find that Paul and Silas are in prison. And at the midnight hour, they sang praises. God prayed and sang praises. That's Acts 16, 25. And as they sang praises, uh, God sent an earthquake and split the prison open. Everybody's chains fell off. All the prisoners were set free just because of a couple of preachers in jail for the right thing, of course, preaching the gospel. Uh, D, put down Acts chapter 20. Not a very good one in one way, but Acts chapter 20 in verses 7 to 10. Paul is preaching the word of God in apostolic power and at the midnight hour a young man by the name of Eutychus went to sleep, fell down from the loft and was taken up dead. Now I say I am very apostolic, I can put you to sleep but I can't raise you from the dead and the message is stay awake. That's very simple. Uh, spiritual lesson, beware of spiritual sleep in this end of the age, stay awake in the revival. <laughs> But Paul went down and raised the young man from the dead and this young man experienced resurrection life at the midnight hour. And then I've already given you Matthew 25 at verse 6. Now let me finish on this and I hope this is not too complicated. I'll try not to make it. I want you to turn over to Mark 13 as we finish. How are you all doing out there? All right? You're very quiet. Are you thinking? Thought I heard a noise out there. People thinking. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, sorry, Mark chapter 13 is a very interesting thing. And uh, we'll sort of uh, wrap up on this. Now, as you look at uh, what we did last week, how many of you remember what we did last week? Nobody? Must have been powerful. How many remember what we did last week? I'll ask you a question. Yes, remember we did the, uh, the, the theory of the uh, day under the laws of a thousand years? Okay. And that we say we are living in day five, and here we are in day six, 1990. What day 96? What year is it? So listen, listen to this uh, thing, just my, purely my indulgences, so it's all right. Matthew, uh, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 13 and verse 35 and 37. Yeah, verse, we'll, we'll go back a little bit more. Verse 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, the, uh, heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh. Put on your notes, one, at even, number two, or at midnight, number three, or at cock crowing, or the crowing of the rooster. You know what we say, Peter was cocksure until the cock crew. Um, number three, or at the cock crowing, or number four, or in the morning. 
lest coming suddenly he find you, like those wise and foolish virgins, sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. Verse 35. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh. Number one, at even. Evening. Number two, or at midnight. Talking about the midnight hour. Or three, or at the cock crowing. Or four, in the morning. Now, I'll try not to make this too complicated, but when you read that in the Roman time, in, in the Hebrew time, and Mark's written more to the Romans and uses more language that the Romans understand, there were four watches in the Roman day and night. Four in the, in the day and four in the night. The, that even was the first watch. Midnight was the second watch. Cock crowing was the third watch and the morning was the fourth watch. So he says, just stay awake. You don't know when the Son of Man is coming. He may come at even, he may come at midnight, and because we think of the midnight hour and the midnight cry, or at cock crowing or at the morning. Now my own notes, it's pretty complicated. But you will find as you superimpose this on, the, on this, you'll find that uh, church history from the time here has gone through its various watches and uh, if you divide time up approximately, we're not setting any dates or anything like that, it's interesting, I've got this all on my own little fun diagram there, that about 125 years equal a watch superimposing this on time and 8 by 125 equals a thousand years. And it's interesting to see that when Jesus came, closes off the Old Testament dispensation, opens up a new day. Coming of the gospel was the opening up of a new day, a new watch. And it went up to a certain time. Then you find that down to this time, we did it last week, the church went into midnight, the dark ages. Then what did we do last week? Bringing this together with this. We said about the 15th century, we have Wycliffe, who was spoken of as the morning star of the Reformation, the morning star heralding a new day. Now, I can't get too, too complicated into this, but as you go through this pattern, which I've got fully on my own notes, just for sheer fun, you'll find that in the year about 1870. Let me just see here, 1875 and the 1900s, very significant thing, it brought you to the midnight hour dispensationally. And what were the emphasis in this period of time? You know what truth was revived? We talked about this last week, but we didn't mention this one. You know what truth was revived? The second coming, the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and 1900s and this period of time, even back in this period of time, the beginning of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of oil, ever since. And since this period of time, there have literally been millions of people receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was the dark ages, and when you go through this time, as I've got on my diagram here, you'll find it goes way back to the midnight hour. So it rose, and then into darkness, then a new day, and then into darkness, and the midnight. Even the scientists, you know, a few years ago, the scientists had a clock, and they said it is the midnight hour in human history. But when they thought things were coming good, they put it back just about 10 minutes before midnight. I mean, the scientists say that, that the midnight hour has dawned upon human history. Now, let's finish on this. We don't set any dates, as we said, but this next day here, the seventh day, my Christian millennium, if you please, it will be a new day. How many believe that when Jesus comes back, the seventh day will be a new day? When you go through the watches here from the midnight hour that's been upon us, we come to a new day. And what, what, what's the counterfeit of that? The new age. All the new ages are talking about a new day. A new age is dawning upon world history when all religions will be one, synchronized. It will be a new day for the church. 
be time of giving thanks because of God's righteous judgments, but for the world who doesn't know Christ, it'll be a time of trouble. I'm glad I'm on the right side of the door, aren't you? We used to sing it when we were kids, one door and only one, and yet the sides are two, inside and outside, which side are you? How many of you have got something out of this message tonight? Twelve people. That's all for tonight, Sister Connor, because I've gone overtime and I get into trouble with the tapeworms. All right, let's all stand. Come back. Uh, there will be no session next week because of the Rodney Howard Brown meetings. Following week, I'm going to be taking up uh, the rebuilding of Babylon, okay? So we'll be looking at that. So you can read your Bible a little bit and see what you can find about that. Some very interesting things going on over with Sudan Hussein. Okay, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the uh, privilege of feeding upon your precious word. Uh, Lord, your word is every kind of food we need. It's manna, it's milk, it's meat, it's honey, it's uh, sweet and sour. It's uh, everything we need to make us grow. Bless your word to our hearts and may it fall upon good ground. May we uh, be like David and hide thy word in our heart that we might not sin against thee. Father, keep your hand upon us for good and help us to glorify you. Help us to help, us to help others who are in darkness, Lord, and that the midnight hour is upon human history. And Lord, it's time to wake up and, and get the oil of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to be everything you want us to be, to be the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.